Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of A Matter of Personal Taste. I am your co-host, Andy Foreman, and I am sitting here with my good friend and co-host, Martin Fisher. Hello, everybody. I'm Martin Fisher, and I'm going to be talking about Tales from the Crypt with my buddy, Andy. Yes. This a great, is... great radio voice. <laughs> yes, this is the start of our podcast, which is going to cover all things EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt, and inevitably all anthology horror at some point. So we wanted to start off by giving you guys just a little bit of background about ourselves. Um, I am in my early 20s, and I'm a filmmaker and screenwriter, and Martin is also the same. You can Pretty much. Martin, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, in my mid-20s, I guess, if I don't uh, go too in detail, and uh, I am both a, uh, a screenwriter and a novelist. Uh, I do have a published work called Tales Under the Blood Moon, which took a lot of inspiration from EC Comics, and uh, yeah, so we're, we're both in the creative and artistic field. Yes, and we are also the uh, names behind Fisher Foreman Productions. That's with, right. Uh, if anybody's ever seen the wildly popular short film Razor's Edge, and I, I use that term very loosely, <laughs> if anybody's ever seen Razor's Edge, that was our first collaboration together. So we're filmmakers that work together too on short little, almost anthology inspired short films that, you know, feature the macabre and, and creepy stuff. And we have more on the way. So that's right. Yeah. And, um, it's this has kind of been our collaborative year you know 2021 has been a lot of a, a lot of you and me kind of working on projects and trying to get things going and uh i'm happy we finally started a podcast <laughs> yes it's it is more than a it is more than about time because uh for all the viewers who don't know us uh martin and i have conversations that can go on for hours and hours yeah. and hours so we finally decided to put a mic in front of our faces and <laughs> and record it for you good people that's right hopefully we're going to try and not keep it to hours and hours per episode but you know we'll see what happens <laughs> yes yeah, so we can't make any promises but we'll do our best yeah. for you good people um our first episode that we're going to be covering we're covering the simultaneous ec story and the hbo television adaptation mm -hmm. uh that's the plan at least for the beginning of the show um and given that it's almost uh, the holiday season, mm -hmm. actually it is the holiday season, it's almost Christmas, we decided to do uh, the Christmas-themed story and all through the house. Um, this was one of the first episodes that was aired. I, I believe, Martin, you, you if I am got it correct, they were air, all aired on the same day. There were three separate episodes. From what I could find, the first three episodes uh, were aired on the same day. Let me get my little notes. On uh, June 10th in 1989. It was, um, all, all Through the House was the second one, but because it was premiered at the same time, and it's the Christmas season, we figured we'd do this one first. Absolutely. And uh, this, honestly, this is my favorite episode of the show. And I'm not just saying that because it's the first episode. Not being <laughs> We, we were we're going to talk about sort of our introduction to EC Comics as well, inevitably mm -hmm. in this conversation. And this episode was my introduction to the HBO show. I, I don't know about you, Martin, how you first encountered it, but I remember I rented the DVD of Tales from the Crypt from my local library. And I went through the episode descriptions. It was season one. I rented the <laughs> DVDs. 
went through the episode descriptions and this one said a woman is terrorized by a maniac in a santa suit and i was <laughs> like that is more than enough for me yeah you can't get much better than that that's just the only tagline you need for an episode like this exactly exactly and what what's interesting is how many names i i, I rewatched it last night and oh my god yeah yeah <laughs> how many names are involved in this? Like not just on screen, like you have Larry Drake and Mary Ellen Trainer, who make mm-hmm. a phenomenal duo of oh. uh, sort of a cat and mouse killer victim relationship. Oh, absolutely. But like, this is directed by Robert Zemeckis. Like, <laughs> it's, it's weird, like, cause you know, Tales from the Crypt, almost the, the brand Tales from the Crypt is almost separate from the actual show and source material at this point, right. where people will just throw out the term Tales from the Crypt anytime they hear a weird story or watch a, you know, watch a movie that's slightly reminiscent of the Twilight Zone. That's like Tales from the Crypt, you know? Right. But when you go back and watch it, and both Martin and I, as a, just a little backstory, we we both caught up on The Sopranos this this. <laughs> that's and, right. And watching this episode, I go, oh my God, like watching both this and The Sopranos, you see like sort of prestige television in their infancy. Yeah, definitely. I don't say infancy in a bad way. I I say it as in like, this is, this was the beginning. These were the ones that started it all that, that proved that you could tell these kinds of stories on television. Right. And it's insane to think that Tales from the Crypt, this kind of a show was the first one to do it really. Like one of the first ones to do it. Well, what, I think what made it so successful, aside from the fact that you had like an A team behind the scenes, you know, mm-hmm. and you had all star talent on uh, guest starring, I think right. what really made it is that this is a show that I I, I I wasn't around when it was out, so I don't know exactly how it was marketed, mm-hmm. but I would imagine it was marketed towards a younger crowd. And this yes. just seems like a great show that you could have a few friends over to your apartment, you know, on a on a I'm guess I, I don't remember what night it aired on but whatever night it aired on <laughs> and you guys could just watch a spooky story for 25 minutes you know and it's one of those things where campfire stories are always or sleepover stories are always going to appeal to us mm-hmm. so the fact that they were able to do something that had the fun of a story that you would tell at a sleepover with your friends but a little bit more of a mature edge to it with the blood and the you know some of the more adult situations i think really <laughs> really a- appealed to people who were just finding out about hbo oh, oh definitely um and it was funny because um this actually wasn't the first episode i had seen of tales from the crypt um i had I caught it randomly during a rebroadcast, I think in the late 2000s, um, when I was way too young, I think, to like really appreciate it. And it was um, the the very first episode. It was uh, The Man Who Was Death with wow. William Sadler. And But I remember like I watched the episode and I was like, eh, I don't think this is for me because I'm like, oh, I, th- I thought this would be funnier and darker and everything. And it wasn't. So I, I, I left it. And then I revisited Tales from the Crypt um, God, uh, probably in my teen years and I did more studying on it. I was just like, okay, yeah, no, this is absolutely my thing. I just was too young, I think, at the time to really understand what it was going for. Because at the time, I think, you know, something like this would have actually genuinely probably freaked me out because I was still a little kid. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's the thing is it doesn't sacrifice scares for for humor. There's humor and scares in both of them. But I think 
what really, really works with anthology horror, and you know, there's such a good amount of anthology horror that is directly inspired by EC Comics. So when you're specifically doing an EC Comics-inspired adaptation, you have to balance both the, the horror cannot be sacrificed at the cost of the humor. You have to laugh and also be scared. And I think that's particularly what an all through the house like just excels at. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think that just be, that comes from the fact that, you know, Robert Zemeckis directed this one and he is definitely not a horror director, mm -hmm. but he is definitely a horror producer. I mean, he was a big part of um, the, the, the 2000s remake revival of the William Castle films. He was a, a big producer on those movies. Um, and it's just interesting because like you watch his films that he did, especially up to this point, because I think up to this point, he had just finished shooting uh, the Back to the Future trilogy. So then to immediately go into this, which is polar opposite, um, tonally, um, it's very interesting. And it's so funny because, um, I mean, with him paired up with Dean Cundy doing the cinematography, it makes such a unique horror story, I think. Yes, yeah. The, it's not just Robert Zemeckis, but you have Fred Decker on the script. You yeah. have Dean Cundy on the cinematography and it really is this great little mini movie that they've made um I think a lot of like anthology horror focus it or, or the the anthology horror that's not as successful as say Creepshow or Tales from the Crypt mm -hmm. um I think it focuses far too much on getting to the twist uh, I think that's the mistake that a lot of anthology or that the lesser titles in the anthology horror make is they focus right. way too much on trying to get to the twist of doing that aha we got you audience when what they really what really sells anthology horror is the tones that you can explore in it and the twist can always be there because that's the thing is as the creator you have control over how long it's going to be you have control over what's going to be revealed to the audience so as long as you know the twist is there you should you know i feel like creators should back up and sort of focus more on the tone and and all through the house is like a perfect example of that. I mean, this to me, and I, I haven't seen everything from this subgenre, but this to me is the best killer Santa story <laughs> ever done. I, I mean, when your only other major examples are like Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is like a landmark movie in the genre, but probably not a very good movie. Hot take, probably. I don't know. I don't think it is. Um, I think you'd probably be right. I mean, the only one that I can think is a competitor for it would be the 1972 Tales from the Crypt version where they did the same exact story. Yes, and I, and you know, if we can talk about that episode, that that part, because we're going to do the Amicus movies. Of course. As their own separate thing, but we can kind of bounce between the the comic and the, the 70s version and the, and the HBO version if we mm -hmm. want. I think where this excels over the Amicus version, and I love 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 the the two movies that they did in the 70s i right. love those movies but i think where this one excels is it has a little bit more momentum to itself or to its yes. narrative like even if that just comes from the score is much more exciting but it's you know it's 22 minutes and it really it it only stops to take a breath when it's building suspense you know Definitely. And I think what helps it, yeah, it's paced so well. And that was a problem, I think, with the Amicus version is that I think the Amicus version leans way more on being scary, whereas this version leans, leans way more on being fun and very, um, it, it keeps your blood going the entire time. It doesn't really slow down because, I mean, it starts out the gate swinging when um, 
uh, Mary Ellen Trainer kills her kills her husband. You know, it, it starts right off the bat and it never really slows down. It just keeps it going. And it remembers to keep kind of the humor of the situation alive, too. Um, and I think partially that comes across in Larry Drake's performance as the killer Santa, because he's just so ridiculous. And it's it's it, it's very reminiscent. I don't know if you'd ever seen the movie Dr. Giggles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's basically that performance. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing is, like, you see Larry Drake in these genre roles. Like, mm. I recently just saw Dark Knight of the Scarecrow for the first time. Uh-huh. And, or, you know, everyone knows Darkman. So. Yeah, of course. But he is so good, good at being over the top without feeling separate from the scene. Yeah. Which is what I love. Because he is so much a part of whatever scene he's performing or, or performing in. Mm-hmm. And no matter how many weird giggles he does in this movie or no matter <laughs> how many weird, like, not even words, but just... uh utterances mm-hmm. he when he when he gets beaten up or stabbed or anything like that like he never feels like he's from another more cartoony show you know right. what i mean he feels like a really creepy psychopathic santa that probably drank a bunch of red bull before he started doing this scene but because he, he, <laughs> his energy is amazing in this oh episode. D- definitely um and i think you bring up a good point with him is that like his performance here is cartoonish and over the top but fits the tone of what it's going for it never feels out of place yes and that's the thing i think we should emphasize the most about this episode is I know that the first three episodes all aired on the the same night, and I know that this technically isn't the first episode, but I think it really is a great template episode mm-hmm. for what the best of this show is. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that comes across so well in just its balance of humor and uh, the horror element. And I mean, yeah, you can reference a lot of the later episodes in the show where it's like they don't really balance it quite as well, where it leans too much on one side or the other. This is definitely like a template episode. And I think a lot of the season is kind of like what you should look at as a template if you're going to do like a Tales from the Crypt style show. Yes, this this is a lot closer to, and I know it came much later, but this is a lot closer to like Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat and Krampus than it is to like an outright horror comedy. Yeah. Like this is is a lot farther away from something like Zombieland. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. The comedy just comes from the situation. It's black humor, basically. Yes. And that's what um, we should, you know, definitely talk about the comic as well, because we. Yes. First off, EC some of the best comics I've ever read in my entire life. And I'm a huge Alan Moore fan. And and I would rank these among the best comics I've ever read, you know, including the ones from Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and all the obvious heavy hitters that everyone's talked about before. EC comics are this amazing, amazing, amazing gem template and time capsule all at the same time. Like, I find, I don't know, uh, Martin and I are both super, super into horror and especially anthology horror, but I find that like, even uh, aside from Creepshow, which nails it perfectly, but like even the most accurate represent uh, recreations of EC comics really don't nail that tone that they have in those original stories. Oh, yeah. No, I agree to that. Definitely. Um, I think... um even some of our best examples of like anthology horror, I don't think come, I don't want to say as close, but I don't think they get 
the dark humor nearly as well as those original comics did, as EC Comics did. They're, the way they're able to handle their horror and their humor is unmatched, I think. Even like, you know, I love Creepshow. It's one of my favorite films of all time. But I do think occasionally it does, it doesn't get the dark humor as well. And maybe that's a hot take. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't think it gets it as well. Huh? Go ahead. Oh, no. Sorry. Sorry. No, just uh, to me, I don't think it gets the humor quite as well. And I love Creepshow. I think that's a, a landmark movie for sure. And it's, you know, undoubtedly had an impact on me. Um, but I do think when it comes to the original, like EC Comics, where I took inspiration from, there is, there's just so much to them. Um, and it's so funny because, you know, they tell like these little eight page stories. And yet each one kind of leaves such a such a mark on you after you read them. I mean, even this one all through the house, I mean, just it, it's, it's considering the time that it came out, it's just so shocking and different. I mean, you know, you had this and then at the same time, you're like Batman fighting aliens. Right. And then you you, you go to the end of it and the like I'm looking at the panel right here and the vault keeper is like, oh, what's in this bag? He's like, it's what's left of her mommy after the maniac was through with her. Right. Like, like, and it's one of those things where, like, um, horror, you know, you and I were both raised on Goosebumps as well, which yes. is very Tales from the Cryptish. And even though they're full books, I would call anthology horror mm -hmm. for sure. No, definitely. Yeah, and these are kind of like Goosebumps, but with more edge you know right. certainly more edge but it's it's one of those things like rl stein talks about i i specifically remember an interview with rl stein talking about ec comics where he says he had the shortest hair in his neighborhood because he kept going to the barber because that's where he would read these they would have them on the magazine table while he <laughs> and so you can definitely see a lot of the influence in this and what i think is so great about this is obviously obviously Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein knew that kids were reading these like they they had to have known that that was a huge part of their market but they didn't make it in a way that was directly for kids like I'm not a parent but I don't know if I would let my kid read EC comics like right out of the gate you know what I mean like there's yeah, some right. here definitely definitely r-rated which i think is so great about ec comics is it gives them that sort of forbidden feeling which is essential to horror to me oh definitely i mean you read through these stories and the art of course is very reminiscent of the time and but you come across these panels that like have really shocking stuff at the time i mean you know even one of the panels in this story has you know the husband's head bleeding out <laughs> while she's dragging the body um and you didn't see stuff like that at the time you know, it's, it, it, it just wouldn't be done. I mean, and it wasn't done for quite a while after EC got shut down. Um, it's, it's what they were able to do here. I see, like, you can see how it had so much of an impact on the creators that came into the 80s and the 90s um, reading these stories when they were kids. I mean, for goodness sake, uh, just taking the idea, and they knew kids were reading this, of course, like you said, and I think, you know, that informs some of their storytelling. I mean, for God's sake, we're talking about a story with a killer Santa Claus in it. <laughs> right, and, and, and it's, a, it's a scary story, too. Like, I'm looking through the comic right now, and they have that panel where she's looking out through the, through the window, and, like, you see her eye, like, widen, and she's like, oh, my God, it's him. Like, the right. way, and, and I think this gets into um, a huge part of what makes 
EC work is the artists that they yeah, have. Definitely. Yes. The these artists were like, you know, comic book Hitchcocks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they, you you walk, you look through these stories and you know, this is no uh, uh I love EC comics and everything. But, you know, some of the stories, I'm not saying necessarily this one, but if you've read as many as I have, some of the stories, you know, aren't the greatest, but because of the art that is in them, you're just sucked in immediately. And you're, every story you read, the way the panels are laid out and the, the art, it's like watching a master filmmaker construct a beautiful little short film. You know what I mean? Oh, definitely. Especially, um, you're right about the art and the shading is just insane on these books. And what they were able to do. Um, I, I need to read more of them because it's been such a long time since I've read some of them. Um, but like even just reading through and all through the house just for this episode, I, I was reminded like how, why I love these stories so much. I mean, what they're able to do in such a short amount of pages leaves such an impact on you. Yes. And, and, and the fact that they don't show the Santa until the final panel. I was going to bring that up. That's one of the best parts of the comic is just like you don't see the Santa until literally the last panel of the story outside of the foil story with the, 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 the host. Right, um, right. You don't see the Santa at all. She just says, oh, my God, he's out there. And you don't see him. So you're going through this whole comic just waiting to see the killer Santa Claus. And the way she like creeps along the door as you hear like the foot, it describes like the footsteps crunching outside like it's i could see a filmmaker and i mean i know they made it in two versions but right. like just this specific the way that it's illustrated i could see like if this were a short film the shot would be tracking along the wall as she creeps along it as you hear the footsteps crunch outside in the snow you know it's just the the best artists in my view like some of the best artists who have ever worked in comics all were doing like their A game work when they were at EC. And that's a thing that you really cannot recreate because, you know, all these artists, they're, you know, they're no longer with us. And it's just a specific moment in time that can't be captured. And that gets to something that I would kind of want to talk about in terms of like just EC comics and Tales from the Crypt on HBO and just sort of the legacy of them is that we were talking about earlier it makes it feel like sort of forbidden like mm -hmm. i don't know about you but like when i was watching tales from the crypt the show like when i was renting it from the library and watching it like <laughs> it felt like something that was forbidden because like i would be watching it and i know my and i was young i was in like elementary school and i knew <laughs> my parents were letting me watch it because it's tales from the crypt you know it's the crypt keeper and he's fun and he's making puns and all that kind of stuff right. but there's moments in the show where i'm like oh if they knew this was in this show they would not be letting me watch this <laughs> i don't know if you have the same experience but <laughs> well i mean i we were in two different households my household was definitely a lot more like oh watch whatever it's fine and so i never felt like that uh, especially by the time i started watching this but there are certainly parts in it where I'm like, yeah, there's no way if, 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 if a kid tried to watch this, they would definitely not be able to. And I think it's because like some episodes feel like um, what people think of when they think of Tales from the Crypt, where it's like, okay, it'd be okay if my, my kid watches this. Mm -hmm. And then there are other times where you're like, no, I wouldn't, I would not let anybody under the age of 18 watch this. <laughs> yes. And that's what's so great about it is that like, as as a kid, and you know, you and I have both seen that really great documentary that's on season the season one DVD where they get yes. history of of EC comics and about how people got so afraid of them, specifically the comics back in the day, like mm -hmm. during the whole, 
you know, Frederick Wortham debacle and all, all you know, all the, yeah. the comics code authority and all that, which we don't have to get into. We have a whole podcast to cover that stuff, <laughs> but, but people started getting afraid of them and adults thought they were corrupting their kids and it was the rise in juvenile delinquency. And I, I specifically remember, and I did not rewatch this documentary recently. This is just a quote that has stuck out in my mind ever since I saw it mm-hmm. was John Carpenter was talking about like, as adults, we start to become more afraid of the world. We start you know, we stop taking risks and we forget what it was like to be a kid where it's like, ooh, like Tales from the Crypt. Like, I want to see what that's about. Maybe it'll scare the living crap out of me. But like, you're the great thing about Tales from the Crypt is when I was watching it as a kid, it sort of fed my curiosity. Like, I got addicted to it. It was like, the more I watched, the more I needed to see what else was in there, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's what's so great about the comics and the show is that you could be, a kid that's just starting to get into horror and regardless of where your tastes lead you and you know in terms of subgenre EC and HBO have something for you oh absolutely and I think it shows um at the time just how popular Tales from the Crypt was I mean uh, I mean with the 50s obviously with the comics and everything and how that popularity kind of ended up screwing them over in the end um regrettably just because of the time they came out um and then you look at the 90s with the show coming out um how popular it was i mean you had everybody was trying to do their own tales from the crypt i mean we already had tales from the dark side which had premiered a couple years beforehand but i mean one of the biggest examples i can think of is and speaking of john carpenter is body bags which was Mm -hmm. supposed to be showtime's tales from the crypt and then for i think the reason they ended up passing on it and they just turned it into a a movie with three parts to an anthology film instead of a show was because i think this was at the time when tales from the crypt started to lose viewership when it was like i think it was like season six by the time that uh body bags was in development or was finished basically um but it's just interesting to see like everybody wanted a piece of this i mean tales from the crypt even had like a kids show spinoff um that was like lasted for like two or three seasons um which is insane to think about now it's like you know when robocop had an animated show or rambo had an animated show it's like why would you ever do this but it it just speaks to how i think popular and how important tales from the crypt was and just all of ec comics in general you know i mean the story we're talking about isn't even from tales from the crypt it's from uh vault of horror and it just speaks to how impactful the the stories are. Um, even when you don't think about them that much, we're just like, oh, they're just silly little stories about, you know, just really f- darkly humorous situations. Um, they 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 leave such a mark, and they clearly have. Um, like I said earlier, you know, so many of um, our favorite filmmakers or you know favorite creatives in general were impacted by these comics or were impacted by the stories they told. Exactly, and speaking to what what you just talked about like how it in, influenced a lot of people including you and me yeah, yeah. Um, i think there is a certain there's a certain school of thought among creators and critics that they seem you know i, I don't know if it's around as much now but people seem to think sometimes that the longer something is or the more complex something is that it is inherently more intelligent or has more to offer narratively and i think that that uh i think that that's a fallacy especially as you start creating your own stuff you realize what a fallacy that is that there's a certain honor to brevity there's a certain like there's a skill and a brilliance to brevity and being succinct and you know tales from the crypt 
is able to tell full stories where you're invested in the characters and you and you are you know you're on the edge of your seat with the suspense and it's eight pages you know oh definitely i mean even in the show itself it it always knew the right time to end i don't think there's a single episode where i'm like oh this is dragging for so long because they're only 22 minutes they don't really drag and i mean even twilight zone had a phase where they did like 45 minute episodes for a season and they were kind of the worst episodes of the series because it just it lacked the bite that the other seasons had just because it just kept going and going and going um so you are right there is there is a uh, it, it takes a specific kind of talent to be able to tell such a short concise story that leaves such an impact right and i mean I would hope that our podcast does the same because I, right. I see we're approaching the uh, the sort yes. of end of our time here. So to the end of our time, can I throw out a couple fun facts that I marked down? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, number one. So uh, the husband who we see get killed off very quickly on is a uh, Marshall Bell, mm-hmm. who um, if you might not recognize him by his name or when you see him, but um, the two big things I remember him from was he was the guy that Quato lived on in Total Recall. And mm-hmm. he was the coach on Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the one that went to the leather club and everything like that. Oh, the one where he sees him like outside of school and yes. still tells him what to do. And then for some reason he goes back to the gym at like <laughs> two in the morning and is like running laps. Yes. Yes. That is him. That's yeah. That's Marshall Bell. Okay. It's it just so, it's just such a bizarre thing to see. I was just like, who was that? I'm like, Oh my God, it's Marshall Bell. That's Quato. Um, another thing, and this is a little costume detail I loved with Larry Drake as the killer Santa is that to make him look more Santa-y, the character put a pillow under his shirt, under his Santa costume. Because when he gets knocked out and he's laying out, you just see this giant thick pillow sticking out of the stomach. Oh, I, you know, I didn't even notice that. That's really interesting. I'm gonna have to go back and, because I have the DVD right here next to me. I'm gonna have to go back and watch that. Right, it's right when Mary Ellen Trainer knocks him out with the ax handle and he lands on the snow. You just see this pillow just sticking out of his shirt, basically. It's, that- it's a great little detail. I love that they don't call attention to it. And I'm yeah. sure subconsciously it, you know, I'm sure I noticed it, but I just didn't register it, you of know? Course, yeah, no. But you know, nowadays, if they were to do that kind of story, they would be like, oh, there's a pillow right there. Isn't that interesting? He's really just a skinny guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and that would, yeah. And that, again, speaking of like brevity, that would just, that would just be padding the episode that would make it take longer and it would kill the suspense. So it's just, it's a testament to the filmmaking craft of this episode. Yeah. yeah de- oh, absolutely. And uh, there are two little extra things I wanted to mention is that sure. the mental, uh, the the escaped killer Santa escaped from Gaines County area, which of course is a reference to William Gaines. Of course. Of course. And then the police officer that calls um, the killer wife, um, his name is uh, Feldstein, which is a reference to Al Feldstein, which is one of the top uh, employees at EC Comics back in the day. So- those are great little references. And I, and I, that, that actually reminds me, I remember I saw an interview with Joel Silver about this episode specifically, mm-hmm. where Bill Gaines was pretty heavily involved in, in this episode or yeah. you know, gave his input. Cause Joel Silver said that um, he, he gave input that at the end of the show, when the Santa comes in, Mary Ellen Trainer should be screaming her head off and just oh not God, stop so screaming. Great. And, by the way, she is like Fay Ray level of like awesome screamer. <laughs> right. I didn't realize how big her mouth gets because like, wow, she owns that scream. 
Yes, and so you, when when you see sort of the over the top, but still in turn, you know, still in tone with the rest of the show, screaming that she does at the very end. Like, <laughs> I, I loved, I love the fact that that came from Bill Gaines, and like yeah. even forty years or you know forty years after he had been doing these comics, he still had that you know, he right. still had that specific eye for just how far to push these stories no yeah he he knew exactly what fit for this show and uh it's so great that he at least had some involvement in the early seasons um and it really shows just in how how strong i think the first few seasons especially just out right out of the gate the first season is for sure um also one little interesting tidbit and we won't realize this till we watch the next episode um this is the first time the crypt keeper actually says the title of the, the title of the story because he did it in the first episode for whatever reason okay interesting. Little thing. yeah interesting. And, and one little thing i did really appreciate that they carried over from the comic uh version of the story the original version is that the the horror host or whatever is wearing a fake santa claus mask like an outfit and then at the end he rips it off and you see the actual how the host actually looks and it's horrifying and all that stuff so yeah fun little details to see carry over yeah and it's nice to see that they really did take inspiration from the comics as opposed to just you know adapting the premise and that was it like right exactly yes so yeah those are the little details i caught that i really enjoyed uh, reading uh watching and reading through uh this story um and just for reference just so you all know this is based on vault of horror number 35 so if you want to read this specific story get that one Yes, and we will be talking about so many more Tales from the Crypt episodes in, in, oh, in God, future yeah. episodes. That's going to be the sort of, pre that you know, it's in the title. It's a Tales from the Crypt podcast. So, okay. so we will be back with many more episodes as, because this show ran for seven seasons. So yeah. the, the, there's many, many comics. So we have quite a bit of source material to get through. But we hope everyone enjoyed this first episode. I have been Andy Foreman. And I have been Martin Fisher. And thank you everyone for listening. Um, we hope you enjoy your holiday season. And maybe, you know, this, this episode is available. Um, it's not available on HBO Max, but it is available on YouTube. So <laughs> it'll be on so YouTube, if, Spotify, whatever I can hawk it on. Yes. Well, I, I, I was referencing that the Tales from the Crypt episode oh. is actually on YouTube, the full all and all. Oh, house. I, I, I thought you were talking about the actual show. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah, you know, yeah. The, the Tales from the Crypt is uh, available on YouTube. So if anybody listened to this and wants to see what we're talking about, then maybe you can have a new uh, holiday tradition for yourself. That's right. And uh, hey, if you really want to buy it, it is available on DVD. Um, maybe if enough people start buying it, we'll eventually get an HD release of this series. Yes, so if everyone could do that. <laughs> yes. Well, I think uh, we're about good to go. So I do want to leave off on a little Crypt Keeper saying, be very careful what you ask for for Christmas. You might just get it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. <laughs>